Welcome back to Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, where you will hear a unique take on the sports industry. Sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and occasionally serious. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. So we saw an amazing performance at Augusta by the world number one, Scotty Scheffler. Baseball is in full swing. Apologies for that pun. And the NBA Finals tip off this week. Now, of course, none of that necessarily matters, though, because all I really want to know, Tim, is what's on your mind right now. Well, thank you, David. Um, <laughs> I uh, I have been on a bit of a streak, quite frankly. Um, I When we had Norbert Gabuza from the PGA Tour, we – uh, we all made our predictions for the Masters, and I my pick was Rory McIlroy, and had a phenomenal final round on Sunday, finished second. Um, but to your point, uh, Scotty Scheffler just uh, just dominated, notwithstanding that Tim McGee impersonation on the 18th green <laughs> on Sunday where he four putted, um, fastest rise from first tournament win to number one in the world rankings and in the history of those rankings, 42 days from when he won his first tournament to going to number one in the world. What a, what a phenomenal run for Scotty Scheffler. Yeah, it sure has been. And, uh, you know, I think in, in all sports golf is, is maybe unique that way, but, but in all sports, uh, there is a desire to see people doing extraordinary things. And what he's doing right now is extraordinary with his rise to the number one uh, player in the world, the number of wins he's had, uh, Tiger has done what he's done, win a major and win four times in a single season on multiple occasions. So he has a ways to go uh, to hit that. But this really is his, you know, going in with the, with that target on your back. And he was the favorite. And, and if we do go back to those predictions, my recollection is I picked Will Zalatoris, by the way, who finished mm-hmm. tied for sixth, I think. So he was top 10. And that was a bit of a homer pick, I admit. I also mentioned Scotty Scheffler when when we went through the predictions, but I know that doesn't matter because I picked Zalatoris. Mm-hmm. Um, Norb, Norb picked Justin Thomas, who also finished the top 10. But I think what this proves is that you and I certainly know more than the PGA Tour executive about yeah, golf. Yeah, I think that, that goes without saying. We're, <laughs> we're, we're podcasters. Um, yeah, and uh, those those god awful uh, yellow pants that Dustin uh, Thomas was wearing on <laughs> on Sunday, I don't think helped at all. But you know, talk about a phenomenal performance! Uh, Tiger Woods gutting it out for four days, and you know, clearly didn't perform up to Tiger like standards. But the fact that he was able to walk that course for four days and finish just a phenomenal. Uh, phenomenal accomplishment on his part, and hopefully he can build upon that. Um, you know, I saw I saw a, a graphic that said there are some holes on, on Augusta where the elevation from top to bottom is is uh, is uh, higher than um, the, the height of the Statue of Liberty. So that's just uh, you know that you know think about having to walk on that with a with a recently repaired shattered leg um, for seventy two holes. Yeah, he, he brought the right attitude. He played relatively well in the first round on Thursday, and then mm-hmm. things did not obviously go well, but he gutted it out, made the cut, uh, and then and then Saturday and Sunday were not particularly good days. You could see that he was in pain. Right. I, I do think that he handled his, his interviews. He did them, by the way, uh, uh, quickly, and um, was a, uh, a very gracious Tiger, I think. Um, yeah. 
Uh, Which you don't always see. Right? Don't, you, you, you don't always see. He tends to focus uh, quite a bit on himself. I think he, he seemed, he came across as very appreciative of everything that was happening there. But the one thing that was consistent about Tiger is that all he thought about was getting, you know, working toward getting better and getting back in a, with a chance to win and win a, win a major, which I, I think a lot of people see as completely delusional. And it just may be. Uh, but as we've talked about before on this show, uh, he's one guy that you don't necessarily want to count out. And that performance on on Thursday, I think, did did show that. But man, there are some young, really good uh, golfers to compete with. And, and uh, you know, um, the one thing that we'll have to see with Scheffler is there was that, you know, going back to the point about, you know, seeing people do extraordinary things that year, that year or two that uh, Jordan Spieth had where everybody was on that bandwagon. And we can see how much he struggled um, uh, since then, although he did a really good job of nailing down a couple real long-term uh, endorsement deals with, um, uh, with Under Armour and AT&T, which yeah. uh, utilizes him quite aggressively. Yeah, they they uh, they used him uh, in a number of spots over the weekend, so they're still getting their money's worth. And speaking so so two things. Uh, one, Tiger said he's you know looking to play in the next uh, month or so, and uh, it just so happens that there's another fairly prestigious event a month from now in Tulsa, the PGA Championship. So it'll be interesting to see if that's the next time uh, he he takes to the course. Um, and then speaking of gracious, I don't know if you saw the interview with Cam Smith afterwards, who not have a particularly good final round after, you know, being right there with, with Scotty Scheffler when they teed off that morning. Um, but he was incredibly gracious. Um, uh, despite, despite the fact that uh, I saw a number of people on social media um, comparing him to either Joe dirt or Joe exotic. So. Well, he, <laughs> he does wear the mullet with extreme pride and it's, it's, he's all in on that, on that look yeah uh, and um you know seeing all of the emotions that come from that birdie that he had at 11 to that um double or triple that he took on i guess triple that he took on 12 um when he dropped uh, uh when he dropped that first shot in the water and just to you know to see that see the face go from you know i've just lost this tournament and but man he, he hung in uh had a few more good holes and uh you know i think we can see the two top golfers battling head to head there for much of the day um, in Cam Smith and Scotty Scheffler. Uh, obviously, Rory just kind of snuck up and, and had an amazing day. Colin Murakawa, another one of the young golfers that we've talked about, mm -hmm. uh, ended up in that, you know, that unbelievable dual hole out on 18 from those two guys from the sand was just in yeah. pretty incredible TV. But I love how everybody is just all over Nick Faldo for blowing the secret. Um, uh, on the broadcast, which was which was kind of funny, but uh, it was still yeah. worth watching time and time again for sure. Well, share share with our audience that secret that he blew. Well, what happened was he they both Morikawa and um, and Rory ended up in greenside bunker traps or in the greenside bunker trap to the right of the green. As you approach the green, uh, Rory hit first. And uh, they, you heard a roar on the broadcast and Faldo says, okay, we have something to show you, but they didn't. And before they could even cut to it, like as I think he was hitting the ball, that when they got back to it, um, he just couldn't like resist saying that this, basically that the ball was going in. So um, <laughs> he, I think he was just so excited. This really was one of the most remarkable shots that I've ever seen. You know, everybody remembers that shot on 16 from Tiger 
uh, to hole out during one of his uh, one of his wins uh, for a birdie off the green. It was just a remarkable bending shot. This one was was quite similar in a way, but it happened on 18. And then more yeah. power right after does the same. Does the same. Yeah, it was like it was almost like it reminded me of those old commercials of McDonald's commercials with Bird and. Uh, and Jordan, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I can, I can do it too. Uh, right. Rory. Yeah. And at that point, if you remember, you know, um, uh, Scheffler was several holes behind him. So it was not a done deal at that point. Right. Right. Rory, you know, it had, had Scheffler pulled a Cam Smith, right. We might've been looking at a playoff or maybe a, a one, you know, one shot differential as opposed to the, you know, the, yep. the, the four shot when that we that we ultimately saw right um but speaking about predictions um let's go back a couple of weeks because when we recorded last week we did not yet have the the final numbers in for the ncaa championships um what we uh i think we both we both overshot the mark we we both overshot so which means if we play by the prices right rules neither of us won that's right um you were a little closer uh, i went 20 i went 21 Wait, million yeah, I'm sorry. Who was, who was you, you were clo you were closer. I didn't say you were right, nor did I say you won, but you were closer. Um, you said twenty. I said twenty. Uh, I said twenty point one. So we were pretty tight. You did that thing where you like go like a cent under, uh, you know, and the price is right because you can't go. You can't go. Uh, you can't go sure, over. Sure, sure. And I, you know, I don't. And and don't give me the Drew Carey price is right nonsense. Right. right. We're talking. Right. Bob Barker. We're talking Bob Barker. I mean, we go OG when it comes to our game shows. Yeah, there's no, yeah. uh, there, there's no question about that. The number, the final number was eighteen point one, which for which for Turner, a cable net, it was a very solid number. Um, averaged uh, the tournament averaged ten point seven million over all their broadcasts, which was up thirteen percent. Interestingly, uh, but not surprisingly, the Duke Carolina. Semifinal game averaged eighteen point five million, which was the second all-time uh, rated uh, semifinal game. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, as predicted, um, as certainly as I predicted, but I think anybody would have predicted it. That March Madness Live broke the record for concurrent streams with uh, one point six million. So, um, oh, I, I think overall the tournament was excellent. We, you know, certainly remember why we love it every year, and the women's tournament did a very large number as well. Uh, and that deal, when that current ESPN, I, uh, I think $500 million deal for all of their championships comes up in a year or two, they're going to split off that women's tournament and get a, get a much bigger number for it. Yeah, the, the ratings were up 18% on the women's side, 4.85 million viewers, most watched uh, women's final in 10 years. Um, I think that's, that trend is going to continue. I just think that more and more people are discovering the, the, the beauty and the joy of women's basketball right. a quick trivia question for you and it's 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 not a trivia question so much but i'll, I'll see if you can guess but i won't keep you hanging do you know who what was the first entity that made um march madness games available for streaming i i would have guessed that it was it was uh turner because they were doing so much of the when, when i was uh, when i was running sponsorships for singular wireless and we had we were a corporate champion um, and AT&T remains a corporate champion to this day. It does a phenomenal job leveraging that relationship. Uh, shout out to Jamie Kerr and his guys at AT&T. But we we had the rights to stream every one of the games across our devices uh, for one year. And then, um, you know, the, the the market just exploded and right. the dynamic was such we just couldn't afford to keep it. But, yeah. but for one year, Singular Wireless had it, which was pretty cool. 
there you go usher in a new era yeah um so let's uh let's do a, a quick switch i wanted to talk today about the um the new buffalo stadium which uh, seems to have the financial approval and um we're talking a small market nfl team but a very hot team of course uh, getting the largest public sub subsidy for an NFL franchise in history to build a stadium. So there's a $850 million in public financing going toward this, $600 wow. million yeah. coming from the state, um, and a uh, and then a big chunk coming from the county as well. Uh, and this this that a, a big portion of that is uh, is actually coming um, from gambling money, but coming from uh, uh, casinos that are already built. We're not even talking about the online betting uh, mm -hmm. activity there. So um, it's a big deal. It, it's interesting that uh, that Governor Kathy Hochul is a huge Bills fan, but I don't think that necessarily factored in. I think that, you know, it's an NFL team. Uh, you do not want to see NFL teams move. The league doesn't. The league is chipping in uh, 200 million uh, in a loan and the team, uh, the owners are saying that they are throwing 350 million toward the stadium a portion of that uh coming from the 50,000 personal seat licenses to uh season ticket holders it'll cost a thousand dollars each so um uh you know it, it's it's interesting there's always been a debate tim as you know on whether or not these these things are worth it for the taxpayer uh this one obviously will be under scrutiny but you have a rabid fan base in buffalo um, I, I don't know any other team that basically holds a parade for a team after they come back and loop from losing a Super Bowl, uh, <laughs> as they did on the Scotty Norwood <laughs> strike um, kick. But yeah. uh, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal fan base there in in Buffalo. Yeah, listen, it, it, the public money, eight hundred fifty million out of a proposed one point four billion for that stadium. Um, that's over sixty percent coming from public coffers. Right. Um, and you're right. There is constantly a debate on the economic virtues of, of a, a stadium and whether it's worth it to invest that kind of money. But it's not really a valid debate. Right. Because one side one side argues facts and the other one argues emotions. Right. From a purely economic right. standpoint, um, it doesn't make sense. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying from a purely economic sense, it does not make uh, it does not make sense to do that. Uh, but when you think about the fact that Buffalo is the only real New York team, and I'm, I'm not doing that to disparage the Jets or the Giants, but they play in New Jersey. They play and practice in New Jersey, um, yet they retain the, the New York name. Right? There is a sense of civic pride um, for the city, for the region, and for the state as a whole to keep, to keep the bills there. Um, you know, there are 2,000 construction jobs that are, going to be, uh, that are going to be created, but those are temporary jobs, right? They're Two to three years, but they are not; they do not necessarily uh, create long, long-lasting jobs. And ostensibly, you're not going to need more ticket takers, or concession workers, or parking attendants, or ushers, or you know, cleaning crew in the new stadium than you did in the old. So the true economic impact is somewhat limited of, of building that stadium. Right. Um, and not to mention the fact that you know the Pagulas have a net worth of 5.8 billion dollars. Right. And uh, and driven by the increased valuation, obviously, of those franchises, particularly in the NFL, that that mm -hmm. number that number has certainly has shot to continue to go up uh, over time as new deals come in and so forth. It's going to be interesting. It, it you know, it's one of the smaller market teams, obviously, um, 
they have had naming rights uh, deals. They, they have a current naming rights uh, uh, partner in Highmark uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield on their building. But the, all of the various deals that, that go back, New Era was on the building for a while. Rich Foods was on the building for a long time. And that's what a lot of people remember that stadium as is Rich Stadium, uh, which had one of the one of the least expensive naming rights deals ever, but it was a very early one. Um, it, you know, what they're going to be able to get in a small market team. The one thing about the NFL, because the way the broadcast deals are structured uh, and the fact that they are good, they will get national play. So uh, I think there can be an expectation of a, of a with a new stadium of, of significantly increasing what they've been able to get um, from uh, uh, other naming rights deals that they've had. But, you know, is it going to be as significant as, you know, SoFi or MetLife in, mm -hmm. in bigger markets, I would say no. No, they're not uh, going to get a, a new They're not going to get a Super Bowl yeah. there, right? right? They're not going to get a Super Bowl in Buffalo. You're not going to play a Super Bowl in Buffalo in February, right? Um, you know, or is, just, the, is the stadium domed? Have I not? I haven't looked at that. That would kind of oh, be a drag. A it's, I, yeah, I, that would be kind of a drag because it would defeat the purpose of football in Buffalo in a way. Right. Uh, but I'm old school that way. Um, yeah. Interestingly, uh, Rich's Dairy stepped up and and provided money for the naming rights to the to the old stadium um because ralph wilson the longtime owner of the bills was threatening to move them out of buffalo back in the early early 70s right but the claim is is that he never liked the name and he had offered some degree of money to be you know just call it buffalo bill stadium so there's some interesting stories about about all of that um, and, and rich products just the, the bills organization apparently never called it by its name, yeah. um, which doesn't suit, which doesn't go well, does not go over big for a naming rights partner. I don't care how small that deal is. And that deal was supposedly 25 year deal for a total of 1.5 million or $60,000 a year, but it dates back to the, to the seventies. Right. Right. Back then there were very few naming rights deals in general. I did, you know, I actually wrote an article on the evolution of naming rights deals for an academic journal uh, about two years ago. So, um, you know, again, there's uh, there's myriad reasons why I'm called professor. Yeah. The, <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting because these the, the, the stories of these deals get get kind of written and and you know we've talked about the crypto.com arena in LA taking over mm -hmm. for Staples Center. Uh, I read an article on that recently and how that came about. And there were so many factual errors in it um, regarding the way the deal came down, what the what the in perpetuity deal that Staples had exercised was. Uh, but it is, you know, the, the people that are telling the story now, which is the the AEG folks, uh, I guess, and the crypto.com folks uh, are going to tell their story uh, as it is. But uh, but I got a little kick out of, out of taking a look at that, having been involved very much in the original deal. Uh, back around uh, 1999, as well as uh, as well as that deal to put Staples on it in perpetuity until a deal could be um, figured out that uh, allowed them to get a lot more money. It, it was true that the money stopped coming in, basically, that mm -hmm. there wasn't, you know, it was a one-time payout to get it in per perpetuity and then paying out the remaining years of the contract, which were 10 more years on the contract. And then at that point, anything further was going to be basically... Uh, uh, not not making any income. So it made sense for everybody in a way. And the private equity company that owns Staples certainly, I think, was happy to make some money on that because it was important for their businesses there in restructuring time. Yeah. And you and I both have seen and know from firsthand experience that you can never or very rarely trust 
anything that you read in the media in terms of uh, in terms of deal terms, right? Whether it's whether it's money or anything else related to a deal, right? The only thing yeah. you can typically typically you know take as factually correct at face value is the, is the length of the deal. Yeah, the, the the length of the deal and what you hear on wait what? Yeah, um, because we don't want to let down that global audience of ours. <laughs> <laughs> But and when, and when we're wrong, which is often, we will try to check ourselves. For yeah, well, you know, I, well, once I learn how to edit as well as you do, I'm going to go back into all of the old <laughs> episodes and simply just take out those things that we've gotten wrong. Yeah, right. We'll just yeah, uh, we we can do that. Let's 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 do a let's do an offsite and, yeah, future, and get that done one time. Future generations will be referring to us as the Nostradamuses of. Of right. the sports business, right. these guys anything. never got. They never got anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be it'll be about you know after about three years of this, it'll be about an hour and ten minutes of actual content. But um, but other <laughs> than that, <laughs> a lot anything, easier for listeners to get through. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anything else? Uh, anything else on your mind before we uh, welcome in our guest? No, let's take a break, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. All right. It's time for our guest. So we are really pleased to have our next guest. Um, Peter Fagan is the president of the NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks and Fiserv Forum. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Peter, it, it seems like a really short time between you know when you joined the Bucks and when you when you hoisted the uh, the, the trophy. But um, you know, looking back over the last year, what what's been different in terms of how you go to market? How do you try to drive more revenue, whether it's through tickets or sweet sales or sponsorships, as a reigning champion, as opposed to somebody who's looking to ascend the mountain? You know, first I'd say it's a whole different scenario. So we went into this market almost as aspirational. You know, here, we we will build it. They will come. Hey, we're going to have a championship off the court and on the court. You know, kind of what your what your brand promise will be. You know, kind of what your, how, how you're pitching, in our case, like a new arena, like a private-public partnership for a new arena. But I think what a championship does is, like, just astronomically, like, increases our platform. So you literally from going local to regional to national, you become global very, very quickly. And, and the energy around that kind of hits all those revenue tentacles and, and, and how to maximize that in a period of time. So in our business, you've got this window. And the second we won the championship, we kind of were this shiny penny that we had to go out and kind of attack maybe a market we hadn't thought of before, which everything from the Middle East to Asia to of course, Europe, and let, we've been toying with it and kind of doing okay because of the Giannis effect and kind of what Giannis means, you know, to the marketplace on an international level. But the championship was really a springboard to generate a lot more revenue, a lot more engagement. So think of our social channels and everything coming in and uh, and brand awareness around the world. So you, you made it to the top. You're the champions. You started this push to go global you have this international superstar in Giannis so playoffs are about to kick off bucks are pretty well positioned again so when you when you look at making a second you know run here does a does a deep run in the playoffs in the second year in a row how do you take advantage of that 
or are all those pieces already in place? Obviously, fans, you know, have a, have an expectation now that the team is going to make another uh, run. How will that how will that next deep run, if there is one, you know, pay off from a from a business standpoint? Yeah, I think for us, the playoffs are, are, are crucial to almost having another season, you know, as you run through the playoffs. But but more importantly, like best practices, we've learned, you know, what opportunities we missed. We learned what we executed, what we can refine and do better. We've learned, for instance, as an example, you know, we created the Deer District, you know, which was a concept and thought and turned into actually like a, a true life example of how do you aggregate 60,000 people outside the arena, celebrating for what's going on inside the arena. And how do you rethink, you know, about the live audiences inside, outside? How do you think about it online? How do you think of yourself positioning on the network? So it's crucial, um, the playoff run. And also in our businesses, like in all leagues, the day you stop playing kind of turns into a dark period, you know, for what your awareness is, what transactions are, kind of what the fan, you know, kind of believes. So it's very hard for teams that don't have playoffs to sell into the next season. Very hard if you have an early exit into the playoffs. Like it just really, really hampers like your progress, you know, for selling, you know, directly if you don't have that playoff run. So let, let's go back and, and talk about the Deer District and some of the other things that you've done to try to grow that local fan base and that local following. Um, clearly winning a championship, right? Everybody's going to jump on that bandwagon. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an overnight thing, right? You started building that local following up, you know, from the minute you, you walked into the, the offices there. Um, you know, what are some of the things you do to engage fans on a local level? What, you know, what goes on, on the, at the Deer District? If, we, if David and I take a trip out to Milwaukee during the playoffs and we can't get in the building, what can we expect outside by sir? You, you would literally have a game experience outdoors. You know, how do we create game entertainment, you know, so it's engaging, activating for, for all ages and demos you could imagine. So literally you create as good an event outside as you could inside to aggregate these people and get them back and make them sticky and enjoy it and kind of have a brand experience. I think you talked about like what does, you know, kind of what does it mean for us? It's all the touch points. So for us localizing localizing our social channels in, in, you know, many languages is like an unbelievable touch point being, you know, a team that, that has the first sign language interpreter, you know, for another group of, of active fan bases to go. I mean, what we're doing now is like aggressively capturing fans in like a big way. And then the real challenge is like in any business is how do you monetize it in, in a big way? So how do you take these events, these physical events like the Deer District, and convert them into, you know, large revenue generating opportunities. That's what, that's our challenge kind of every day. We sit there and think about, you know, kind of how can we aggregate this? How do we, how do we really monetize our social, our social media and our channels in a big way? And, and the world has changed so fast. I mean, we retail more tickets on Facebook live than we do anywhere else, you know, I tell you what, the Deer District situation, I, I think it was almost intimidating for other teams. I know as, as you guys were uh, making your run and it's just the momentum every game. And, and you're right. You mentioned how the broadcast partners really played into that. It really was an incredible part of any broadcast that the Milwaukee Bucks were playing on that. So so hats off on, on making that a... Uh, a core part of the Milwaukee Bucks uh, brand and, and, and something that obviously people in Milwaukee have responded to. 
Um, since you arrived in Milwaukee, uh, Peter, you have been vocal on your opinions about uh, Milwaukee and, and past records on race relations. Can you give us an update on on where you feel that is and kind of where you feel the Bucks um, fit within that uh, environment to to be trying to push for positive change? Yeah, I, I think like you 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 know we became the team that put the professional sports on pause. You know, with boycotting a game in the bubble um, a year. And I don't think that was a new thing for us. I think, you know, for us, we've been speaking about, you know, and our players have been speaking about social justice, equality and fairness for, for a long time. And I think that all comes from our ownership. You know, the, the voice of the organization, it's easy when your owners create a great platform and it's based on, Hey, let's like stand for fairness and equality. Like, in, in our community, in our country, in our world, let's let our players have a voice and let's, you know, kind of evolve from that. So I, I think, you know, we could have been way ahead of the curve and, and hopefully led some of the innovation of, of teams understanding how powerful their platforms are in, in standing for something. But, uh, you know, for us, it's become one of those attributes that people want to work here. Players love to kind of have the support and feeling there, you know, it's, you know, we're in a sport where 85% of our players are African-American, you know, and, and as they go through these chapters, you know, to kind of have institutional support is like beyond meaningful. And they've told us that, you know, and I think that's kind of part of the vision of our ownership is kind of understanding the importance of, of not sitting back and actually being proactive and promoting equality and fairness. And, and players, you know, players always will have a platform, right, to have their voice heard. Um, and, and it's wonderful to see it, right? Um, doesn't matter if it's a basketball player, football player, what have you, but, um, what do you do to sort of empower your front office employers, employees to, to speak out, to become involved because they don't have that platform that the players have. Yeah, I think we do a couple things. So for a number of years, like we've, we, we've kind of driven, we, we've got a diversity leadership council within our, within our front office. You know, we've got about 300 full-time employees and about 1200 part-time employees, through Pfizer Forum in the district and our real estate and, and our team. And I think, you know, one of the things we've done is create employee research resource groups of which some players participate in um, to kind of get these, get these social groups um, and minority groups like in a place where they can actually talk with each other. And more importantly, we use it as a platform of innovation to show other companies around Milwaukee what we're doing, to show other NBA teams, you know, kind of what we're doing to be able to mirror it and kind of give that support and voice to to our players and to our employees. Talk a little about the play on the court uh, with this question, but we, we already mentioned Giannis quite a bit. You called it the Giannis factor, and I think that's obviously a real thing. He is absolutely one of the most likable players in the NBA, uh, certainly currently, if not of, of all time. And in Pierce, he just continues to get better. Um, what what does he mean to, to Milwaukee? Um, and therefore, how are you using him within Milwaukee? But now that you have won the championship with him on the team, does it does it become harder to keep him long term? Yeah. So the best way to answer that question is tell you like a little story, kind of a how important how important Giannis is. So John Horst, who's our general manager, who has been with Giannis, you know, the last nine years, you know, since he came here, and uh, and myself, kind of, and we've had unbelievable milestones like over the last six or seven years, including you know, kind of a, a march to a championship, opening a new arena, kind of progressing, you know, in the community. 
Yeah, we had a moment in time where we both were kind of in a car, had to pull over, kind of cry, laugh, and smile, and and just, you know, kind of thank God, you know, when we resigned Giannis, you know, for for the Supermax at the largest extension, you know, for five years in, in a big way. And that was like one of those milestones that just happened to change the trajectory of like what this team can be, what our mission was and what our value prop was to the world. You know, when, when, when this generational player is on the court, you are in the run for a championship, you know, period. When this generational player is on your team, you are attractive to every player who wants to join him in Milwaukee to run for a championship. You know, those, those elements are just so rare and so incredible. And by the way, for Giannis to stay in a small market, you know, to understand the value of it, to under, to want to be, you know, built around him, which, which John and ownership have done in such a good way. It, it's kind of like, it's one of those great stories that, um, you know, just continue to play out in us being able to, you know, really have his commitment, resign a generational player and become a top notch, you know, NBA team for what we think will be a few years down the road, which is a great thing to sell against and position against. So, so Peter, uh, first of all, uh, David, David pulled up, right? He thought he could carry the water, but then he, he, he laid up. He didn't want to say Antetokounmpo. He said he was going to say the last name. Oh, I'm, going to, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to nail it. But but you, you mean just, like so, you mean like you know, I you mean like you I just did. did. Yeah, like, like I, you did, like oh, you just did. Yeah. That was pretty. I, I I noticed that's why you go off. You go on mute so you could practice it. I think I that's what you're doing. You, I did see you mouthing something in the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. If you look, you know, if you look at my, yeah. if you look at all the web pages I have up, the Google <laughs> search was Antetokounmpo. Um, pronunciation and it's spelled <laughs> phonetically on my screen. So, so you caught me. So David, please take that out. And, uh, <laughs> no way. But you, Peter, you started off by talking about um, how the, how the, the Bucks brand has grown from a, from a local to a, to a national, to a global brand. How do you take advantage of players like Giannis, uh, an NBA championship to build a fan base in other countries? And where are you seeing people embracing the Bucks brand around the world. Is there any, is there any particular region, any particular country where you guys are really, uh, you know, the team? Well, I mean, it's funny you ask, in the Philippines, the world is Bucks. You want Bucks basketball, the Philippines, eight out of nine people pro sports relate to NBA and a large percentage of those guys are Bucks fans, which is kind of interesting to deal with. So that's a great microcosm of like how we think about it. So take, where is where is the Philippine audience? You know, kind of on media. What what's the possibilities of partnerships and sponsorships? You know, with Philippine with with um, Philippines based companies, and then obviously Asia in general, specifically China and the major cities is is NBA. You know, crazy and Giannis, kind of just a little bit back of LeBron and kind of tied with 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 Curry, is really the face of the NBA internationally. So, you know, you take that billboard effect and and able to leverage it for partnerships and sponsorships. I think the league has done an unbelievable job in starting to kind of inject pro pro NBA basketball through our international games and like create even deeper, you know, kind of wedges. But, you know, this is really about engagement. So, you know, the whole world is really changing to mobile and to social and, and like how we engage these fans, like in their voice, 
How do we bring them in? Then, you know, then of course, like how can we transact with them? Was there any particular reason why the Philippines embraced and sort of adopted the Bucks as their team? I'd love to tell you like our deep business analytics, our business intelligence, <laughs> our insights or anything else. And Mark Tatum, who's a deputy commissioner of the NBA, and I were just laughing about kind of like, we wish it could recreate the Philippines, like, you know, 20 yeah, right. times. But it's, uh, yeah, I couldn't tell. I'd lie if I told you I knew what where this deep-seated love came from. Uh, that's great, though. So uh, Fiserv is a Brookfield, Wisconsin-based company, and they're a global payments uh, system company. What uh, are, Have they been able to take advantage of this expanding brand of the Milwaukee Bucks to uh, – um, you know, to, to spread the word or utilize it? What else can you tell us about the relationship with your naming rights partner? Yeah, I mean, great question, because we came into this relationship as really how could we be this global company's Petri dish in global payments and like really think about it. So our relationship is a case study within itself. Like we went cashless and and um, and uh, and ticketless and um, and registerless like pretty quickly. You know, and that's kind of like how to go direct to consumer, kind of their Clover, you know, which is one of their products, you know, that gave them almost like proof of product instantaneously in the stadium and arena venue, which is mirrored in the retail venue as well as they were kind of going out. So this is a deep scale fortune, you know, 200 company that literally has the means to continue to invest in CapEx with us and think about growth. Um in a big way. So I think also on the tech side, you know, them exploring things like where are, where is crypto going? What are NFTs going? I mean, we kind of leverage their brain equity as we think about markets as well, you know, cause they're interested. So the relationship is like deeply, deeply seated, you know, in pure, you know, FinTech, you know, in retailing into direct to consumer and then kind of more excitingly in innovation, you know, like what is next, you know, for us, we want to create an ecosystem of payments like throughout the Deer District, you know, that makes it seamless and great. They can take that case study and, you know, kind of create ecosystems across cities and, and countries. And you touched upon crypto and NFTs and the Bucks is one of the first teams to actually embrace NFTs as a way um, to engage the fans in a, in a new and different way. Um, what's your thoughts on 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 the NFT world and and crypto in general and and how it can drive your business. So I'll answer differently because I think they're both different. So so to be yeah. determined on NFT programs, you know, we're we're as a league playing with what the what the IP is, how can we figure this out? Like where does it sit kind of in the in the ecosystem? Uh we've curated and 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 um had done some fun things with NFTs like championship rings and and things like that. And we're just kind of testing out and and figuring that out as to what, where is the place in NFTs and kind of what is the growth perspective of it in a big way. I think it's done unbelievable in art and in some, in some classes, like we're still trying to figure out like where we would sit. I think crypto is a little bit more, you know, kind of it, it's here, it's going to happen. Like it will be like how to accept crypto, how to figure out how to, how to transact in crypto is one of our big, is one of our big objectives. We think, you know, in some form, it'll be a weeding out process of who's in crypto in, you know, two to three years, but we don't think it's going away. And, um, you know, we kind of put it on like how we think about things like sports betting and stuff like, hey, this is something like we've got to master, we've got to understand where our role and our position is in it and how do we, how do we optimize a return? 
but all pretty exciting stuff. I mean, all in the last, you know, two, three years, really kind of in our industry of like, where does sports entertainment, you know, kind of sit in all those universes? Yeah, the the speed with which things have shifted. I mean, fintech in its simplest form seems almost like a date, not a dated, but an older category, right? A mature right. category, but this is still so relatively new. And now fintech has to intersect with all these, these you know, other concepts and crypto and so forth. Um, and it's just such a fascinating time it, it, and it, it, it doesn't change. So, and it sounds like you're on top of all the, all the aspects that are going to be important and that needed to be looked at. Well, the one thing we know is trend wise, like the world is direct to consumer. So like directionally, it's all going to be about how do we, how do we, how do we engage and have two-way communication, you know, direct to the end user is kind of where all this stuff is going, which is kind of interesting. You know, where we used to have a lot of middlemen, we used to have a lot of things and now kind of success is really to how do you know everything about your customer? How can you engage and talk with them and how do you transact with them? Peter, we uh, for, we really appreciate the time. We know that you know the playoffs are kicking off. You have a big series coming up with the uh, with your rivals from the from the south uh, here soon. Uh, but we do, as Tim mentioned, like to ask a couple questions before we let you leave. And the first one is, where'd you get your start in the business? Where'd your career get started? Where'd you start so, like an incredible story, I, uh, I graduated Franklin and Marshall, a small liberal arts college in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I didn't have a job graduating. I kind of ended up talking to a person who said, like, why don't you call this guy who's a lawyer who just put up a sports agency, um, you know, a year ago. And the guy happened to be a former Time Warner lawyer who, uh, who had two clients, Zena Garrison and Arthur Ashe. And it was about maybe the last two years of Arthur Ashe's life. And they needed somebody to basically be Arthur's right hand and understand that at that time, this was kind of one of the most engaged, enthusiastic, active people who were failing physically, you could imagine. And I spent about eight months you know, towards the end of his life executing everything from travel to exhibitions to clinics to, to charity events that he really wanted to spread kind of what he was doing and kind of, it sounds crazy that that job was the first instance that like, boy, if you know nothing, you could probably figure it out. Everything from, you know, travel to hotel to, you know, traveler's checks back then, what the, what the hell are those to, to get through to, to how to put lots of parties together and execute events and, uh, and kind of learning like what a business, you know, sports and what it could mean. And then I had an unbelievable opportunity, you know, literally my job that kind of launched everything was at Madison Square Garden. And, um, you know, one day I was down at, at Coca-Cola and a guy by the name of Chuck Fruit, who was a CMO at the time, kind of one of the great guys. Legend. Who, legend. We were doing Coke can promotions, as you can imagine, at Six Flags, which we did ever. And he just said to me, you know, Peter, like, you should call Dave Checkets at the Garden and they are reorganizing everything. They don't have someone like you kind of on the partnership side and the sales side. And Ernie Grunfeld, you know, he said, Ernie Grunfeld. Dave Checkets might not meant much to me then. He said, Ernie. And I was like, I'm a New York kid. Ernie Grunfeld. Are you kidding me? Like, it's the Ernie and Bernie show. It was, I was like, I almost <laughs> make a long story short, like 
Chuck directed me. I was in front of Ernie Grunfeld probably that Monday, you know, after like a Friday. And two weeks later, I was working at the garden. And uh, it kind of it kind of links into what I tell now I'm getting old enough to like give everybody career advice. And I always tell people like very clearly, like collect people, collect people. Mm -hmm. Like people want to help, people want to engage, people think it's networking, it's more than networking. Like you really have to understand the value of, of people and communications and staying in touch and, and people really want to help. So one of the things I've just always done is like really enjoyed having like a really diverse kind of interesting, you know, professional and personal group of folks kind of, I laugh with a core group of friends of mine that we say, there's not a, something we could never solve. You know, we've got our doctor, we've got our accountant, we've got our lawyer, we've got our sports executive. Like, how do you round out, you know, kind of the folks you're with? It's great advice, collecting people. Peter, can't thank you enough for joining us today. Good luck against the Bulls and beyond. Um, hopefully you'll be hoisting the Larry O'Brien trophy for a second year in a row. Um, we look forward to uh, to following the Bucks throughout the playoffs. By the way, Peter, what that was, I think, was a Tim McGee prediction, and he is on a roll right now. He has he has historically bad prognostication, but he is on a roll. So I think that bodes right. well for the Bucks. Twenty two is your year. I'll take it. <laughs> I I will go out on a limb and say the champion is coming out of the East, and the team to beat is the Bucks. Yeah, we'll take it. Thank you, guys. There, there you go. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks. David, what a great guest we have. Peter Fagan, president of the Milwaukee Bucks and Fiserv Forum. Um, great insights into the sports industry. And as uh, as most of our guests are, are really gracious to do, giving great advice to people looking to break into this, into this crazy business of ours. So what are you looking forward to in the upcoming week? So I am going to do my best to catch one of the Apple TV broadcasts uh, this Friday. Um, They've launched and they've gotten pretty universally panned uh, for a couple reasons. One, people saying that the broadcast team was horrible. They didn't even seem like they were following the game to the comments, you know, even more detailed that it seemed as though the game was secondary. Now, uh, we always get these type of comments when they're uh, when we have change. And there's no doubt that this whole partnership between Apple and MLB, I think, is meant to create some change, try to focus on a younger audience, do things very differently. I want to make sure I see it for myself uh, and then be able to report back to uh, to our listeners, because while I think there are some legitimate claims from what I've heard that the uh, you know, that announcers really didn't seem to be actually they were talking about things that weren't relative to the game. Um, and that the broadcast team was just a, was pretty weak. I want to hear it for myself. I want to see it for myself. I want to see what they're bringing new to the party, uh, and uh, and we'll see if if the concept of what they were trying to partnerships is being delivered because that's what I think people forget. They always look at what they've expected and what they want out of a sport they love versus what is the reason that these deals were done and what are they trying to achieve with them. Yeah, they certainly Apple certainly took a different tack when they named their uh, their announcing teams, right? Um, I love Katie Nolan. I think she's uh, she's funny, she's insightful, uh, she's really smart. I don't know if she's necessarily a great 
uh, MLB analyst, but I'll, I'll be checking it out as well. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, as you, as you may know, I'm a, I'm a big memorabilia and collectibles guy. And um, recently uh, they announced that uh, the jersey that was worn by Diego Maradona, one of the great footballers of all time uh, for, for Argentina, He's a number ten, and then for those of you who aren't familiar with football, it's, uh, if you're a number ten, you're the you're the the man, so to speak, or the woman, as in the case of women's soccer. But um, this was the jersey he wore during the quarterfinal match against England in the '86 World Cup, where he scored uh, what has been uh, come to be known as the Hand of God goal, uh, in which uh, he, from certain angles, clearly uh, directed the ball with his hand and. Um, should not have counted, um, but there was no replay at that point. The referee apparently was was blocked from a good view. The goal was allowed to stand. It put Argentina up one nothing. They went on to win two one. Coincidentally, uh, Maradona scored the second goal in that match. It was known as the goal, uh, the, the goal of the century. Um, he after the match, uh, w as tradition holds in in football traded his jersey with a midfielder on the English national team, um, Steve Hodge, 40-something um, years, 30-something years later now, Hodge is putting that jersey up for auction, um, and they're expecting it to, to get over $5 million in auction when the, when the gavel comes down. So I'll be watching that. Um, seems wrong to me, uh, but uh, I suppose – uh, that jersey uh, and and Maradona has has passed on and and so he can't I guess complain about it but I am curious as to see what other people's thoughts are as this is going but uh, yeah definitely um, you know he he is a legend and I think it's an important story to talk about because I'm pretty sure we've cleared uh, Argentina from a listener standpoint as which well. is why I'm being very careful in how I describe the the goal and the scenario and so forth. Um, but, you know, listen, there are some people who think it sort of violates the spirit of trading jerseys. But, uh, you know, you look and, and over the last two years in particular, there's been a huge spike in, in auction sales of all sorts of memorabilia, trading cards, uh, ephemera and things like that. And um, the fact that, uh, you know, you see from time to time sneakers that Michael Jordan has given to people as a thank you gift have come up for auction and, and have sold for ungodly sums of money um it's certainly not without precedent that that hodge would would sell this and listen we don't know what his financial situation is um i'd be hard pressed if i were to go into my collection of memorabilia and find something's worth five million dollars to hold on to it for sentimental reasons good yeah. point so on that on that note um thank you to my co-host david uh thank you to our guest peter fagan from the milwaukee bucks and most of all thanks to you our listeners um, I hope you all have a great week and we will see you on the next episode. Wait, what? Next to you.